All right, good morning, everyone. Our second uh, scripture text, our gospel text, is from John chapter 12, verses 20 to 33. And I invite you to hear, uh, listen to this text once again, listening for the word God has for us this morning. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, Ah, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Except for the younger people who maybe weren't around back in September of 2001, most of us can remember the exact moment that we heard about the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center. I was counseling someone in my office, which the secretary knew, and she would usually never disturb me at those times, so when she started knocking loudly and rapidly on the door, I knew something was up. I'll never forget the absolute horror and fear on her face as I opened that door and she said, oh, Nancy, it's like the world is coming to an end. You may remember that the Pentagon was also hit beyond the Trade Center and another plane was taken down on a field meant for another building, but thankful for the passengers 
who made that happen. Nobody knew if we were going to keep getting these attacks all over the place. Nobody knew what was going on. Everybody was in shock. As the images of the planes striking the towers, the explosions, the crumbling buildings crossed our TV screens, people covered in gray ash, some jumping or falling out the windows, it was just beyond belief. At the time, I was president of the local interfaith council, so I gathered all the local clergy from all religions together to plan a service for the whole city, which we had that very night. As awful and heartbreaking as the day had been, there was something so comforting in everyone coming together and combining our prayers. When one man left, he said to me, I wish we could come together like this all the time. Why does there have to be a tragedy for this to happen? I had already planned a mission trip to New York City with our youth group to work in some homeless ministries, and just a couple of months after 9-11, we went. When we walked around the outside of the cordoned off World Trade Center debris, we found that the fencing was covered in flowers and pictures and mementos of loved ones, special tributes to emergency responders who went toward the chaos to help others while human instinct would be to run in the other direction. We stopped to visit St. Paul's Chapel, the chapel right across the street that wasn't harmed at all. It had served as the main place for the rescue workers to rest, to wash up, to have warm food, to receive new supplies, to have worship if they so choose, to get things like new boots when their own had been charred, walking around on all of that debris. In the first three months after 9-11, more than 3,000 workers passed through those gates of the chapel. While recovery workers were changed by what they volunteered to do at Ground Zero, they were also changed, maybe even more so, by the ministry offered to them at St. Paul by its volunteers. Over 300 clergy came to offer counseling. Imagine how many workers working in that place day after day needed a place to have someone listen and care. On the day it happened, amazing stories of how people helped one another flooded the news. You may remember some of those. Strangers helping each other out on the street. Merchants coming out of their stores, giving people free food and clothes and shoes. Some people bringing their boats to the docks so that they could ferry people away from Manhattan as that gray ash still loomed in the air. Folks across the country were filled with compassion and a sense of unity. Many across the world shared their prayers and their concern. There is no getting around the fact that 9-11 was horrible and evil, with so much senseless and heartbreaking death and destruction. At the same time, suddenly facing mortality like that somehow stirred people's faith, helped them to embrace our common humanity to drop their guard to show the love in their hearts. 
In our gospel reading today, Jesus is facing the reality of his impending death while trying to get his disciples to think of the new life that will emerge on the other side. It starts when some Greeks tell a couple of Jesus' disciples that they want to see Jesus, and we don't know if they were just tourists, if it was just curiosity, or if maybe they really hope to learn something from him. Maybe they hope to become his followers. When the disciples tell Jesus about them, his answer seems like a non sequitur because he says, now is the time for him to be glorified. What Jesus means by glory is the complete revelation of his identity. It's time for him, him to be known for who he truly is. Somehow having these Greeks who are from places and traditions beyond his own Jewish people coming to see him too, reaffirms for Jesus that the shadow of the cross is near and he starts talking about his death. Of course, it has to be on his mind. All the signs have been pointing that way. Although Jesus knows that the Romans and the powerful elite are angry at him in Jerusalem, he still goes there for the Passover. He still overturns the tables of the money changers. Not a provocative move there. He still goes on being who he is, even when he sees the storm clouds gathering around him. The Greeks want to see Jesus of Nazareth, but that can't really happen anymore because he is so much more than the man they have heard about. The glory of God is unfolding right in front of them and they don't even know it. We have to wonder if they knew, if they could know, everything that was going to happen in the next week, would they really want to see Jesus? Or might want, they want to avert their eyes? How could they or the disciples anticipate him kneeling and washing their feet in the upper room, hearing him say that one of them will betray him and one of them will deny him? How could they imagine the trial, the crown of thorns, the flogging, the pain of the cross. Even we who live on the other side of the cross struggle with it. We want to look away too. I've heard people question why Jesus doesn't just avoid the whole thing by staying in Galilee instead of going to the very place where there are people who seem to hate him the most. Why doesn't he fight back when he's arrested, defend himself at his trial or try to convince Pilate to spare him when it seems like Pilate is kind of hoping to do just that. Through the years, some have painted Jesus as someone who stoically goes through the whole thing without a hint of emotion. And yet here, Jesus says, his soul is troubled. He wonders for a moment if he should ask God to save him from all of this. And you know, in the other Gospels, we hear his agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and see him struggle with the very real and human emotions of facing the agony of the cross. Here we see the vulnerable Jesus expressing his fear while also saying, but use me to make a difference here. Some believers want to look away and gloss over the reality of Jesus' suffering. And some want only to think about Jesus' pain and suffering as if that is the only part of his story that makes a difference. 
For centuries, there have been some theologians who look at the cross at a particularly disturbing but popular way with substitutionary and punishment-oriented theories of atonement. Such theories don't come around until at least 12 years after the actual events and were reflective of the ancient practice of animal sacrifice to appease angry gods. The gospel is not that God takes out God's rage on an innocent victim so that God doesn't have to take it out on us. Jesus died as a result of human sin, not as a requirement for divine vengeance. Sin is not defined as breaking God's laws, but as the things we choose that separate us from God. And Jesus shows us how far love will go to bring us back. As early as the 4th century, Gregory of Nyssa wrote that Jesus' death was more of an act of liberation. 700 years later, a theologian named Abelard would stress Jesus' pure love in the face of violence and hatred and death as something that transformed the human psyche, reorienting us toward a theology of sacrificial love freely offered by Jesus as opposed to being required of him. It seems that the writer of the Gospel of John agrees that we are called to focus not on the violence but on the values of humility and peace, compassion and selfless love that Jesus lived and taught and to which he remained faithful even at the expense of his life. Trying to point us beyond crucifixion to resurrection, Jesus uses that parable of the wheat to remind his disciples that out of death comes new life. The cross is part of the larger story of Jesus' life, his work, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. When he says that those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life will keep it, can be a little confusing. But he's not talking with the same sort of language and understanding that we might use today. He's saying that when you love the comfort and predictability of your life, so much that your focus is all about protecting yourself, maintaining the status quo, seeing your life's purpose as self-fulfillment, then you are not really living at all. Instead, Jesus urges you and me to give our lives away, to let go of our self-centeredness and experience the joy and the freedom of giving ourselves to others. Back in my teenage years, way back in my teenage years, I knew someone who discovered this the hard way. Keith was once the most popular guy in high school. Not only was he smart and charming, but he was absolutely gorgeous. I remember trying to make myself breathe and not drop my jaw when he would walk by. Then one day, Keith was in a major car accident. I remember people rifling through photos at school, trying to find as many pictures as possible to give the plastic surgeon who was reconstructing his face. It was a long, hard road to recovery. And although there was a little scarring, he was still a handsome boy when it was all done. Yet something in him 
was very different. Something in his spirit was more beautiful than it ever was before. Having faced his mortality in a way that few teenagers ever do, his day-to-day living became more focused on lifting others up, helping them to feel valued and loved and like they mattered. He had realized what was important. Instead of sitting with the other jocks or the most popular kids in school at lunchtime, he would seek out the one sitting all by themselves, or the one that he had seen get hurt by careless and cruel words that day. He joined the Big Brother, Big Sister program so that he could try to make a difference in the life of a child who needed a mentor, a friend, or simply some attention and kindness. When Keith began to understand what it meant to give his life away to others, you could see Christ's light in him. Friends, if you put your trust and your life in the hands of God, who has shown you such an amazing depth of love in Jesus Christ, perhaps the moment that you feel like you're losing your life will be the very moment you find it. Then just maybe someone will be drawn to God. Someone will know the love of God because they saw Christ's light in you. Amen.